Dave and I have run literally hundreds of miles together. I was going to say thousands, but then I'm not sure if that's literally true, but I think so. Hundreds of miles together. We've been running together at least twice a week for 15 years, and so uh, we've spent a lot of time together. Uh, Dave uh, is... Um, was a Bible teacher at Southeastern Bible College back when there was a Southeastern. Uh, he is an attorney in town, and he is one of the most gifted Bible teachers um, I've ever known. And so uh, after the, the video, Dave is going to come and share uh, as we continue our series on thankful giving. Thank you, Bart. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to share the scriptures with you this morning. This is a story we're going to look at. It's in Luke chapter 17. And I really like stories. I think most of us like stories. But there's a funny thing about stories. You can tell them in different ways. For instance, Ernest Hemingway was at least the legend goes, was once uh, wagered whether or not he could tell a story and in a short amount of words. And he said, well, sure, I can tell a story in six words. So he took out a napkin and he wrote down these six words. He said, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. It's a funny thing. Every time I share that story... People always think, well, oh, I know what happened. Some think, well, the baby died. There's always a backstory that we kind of fill in. Whatever the backstory might be, and we don't know, one thing is true. He didn't start the story at the beginning. That's the fun thing about stories. They can be told in so many different ways. Sometimes they, they start in the middle, and then you have to fill in all the gaps, kind of like the Star Wars movies, if you remember those. But some stories start at the beginning, but then they surprise us at the end. Like that movie, The Sixth Sense. Do you remember that movie? 
we all thought that uh, Dr. Crow, who was a child psychologist, was uh, helping Cole along work through his issues. And at the end of the movie, you found out that Dr. Crow was dead because Cole sees dead people. I mean, I can still remember walking out of the theater and thinking, what, in the, what happened? I have to see the show again to find out I, well, how did they set this up? That's the fun thing about stories. Stories can be told in so many different ways. And this story that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 17 is a simple story. Actually, there's kind of a, a version of a similar story told in Luke chapter 5 of the healing of a leper. But this story has some different parts, and I think it ends up being a surprise story when you get to the end of it. You have the, the setting, and then you have Jesus who heals 10 lepers, and one leper's response, and then Jesus' response. I mean, it sounds really simple, and you think, okay, I already know this story. Let's go home. Well, maybe, but there might be a more adult reading of the story that will surprise us when we get to the end. First of all, you have this setting. And the way I like to describe what's happening in the setting is like going to see a movie and the camera comes over the top of a set of trees and then it comes down a road and then it kind of takes a left and goes up to a house and then in the house and then all of a sudden you see the characters in the house. So very general to very specific. And that's what's going to happen in this particular setting uh, when we pick up in verse 11. It says, and it came about while... He was on the way to Jerusalem. I guess we need to stop there. While he was on the way to Jerusalem. That phrase has been used ever since Luke chapter 9 verse 51. And every time it gets repeated that he was on the way to Jerusalem, there's a conflict that's going on, a mis misunderstanding, and he corrects their misunderstanding. For instance, in 951 through 56, he's going through Samaria. The Samaritans won't receive him. So his disciples say, well, you're the Elijah figure. Call down fire from heaven and destroy these people. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to work. My paraphrase. Then when you get to chapter 10, verse 38 through 41, we're told again, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's with Mary and Martha. And Mary is seated at his feet in the posture of a disciple learning. And Martha comes in and says, well, could you ask Mary to help me? Because I'm preparing this meal and there's so many people here. And he says, well, actually, no. Mary has chosen the good place to be. In chapter 13, verse 33, you have, uh, actually, it's 13, verse 32, you have this discussion about salvation. Well, is everybody going to be saved? And he says, well, no, the road is broad that leads to destruction, but there is a narrow road, and that's the road of salvation. And surprisingly, the first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. In chapter 14, verse 25, it says again, he's on his way to, to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified ultimately, and he warns them against making rash decisions of discipleship. Not so fast, he says. You need to count the cost. You need to take up your cross when you follow me. It's a costly endeavor. 
And now we're told in chapter 17 and 11, he was on his way and he came about while he was on his way to Jerusalem. And he's going to address this misunderstanding in Israel. They think by heredity, they have privilege. They have a place. They're part of the people of God. And so God is going to fulfill all the promises for them. And he's saying, well, not so fast in this story. The setting gets more specific as the verse goes on. It says, and it came about while he was on his way to Jerusalem, that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. <clears throat> now that little map shows an arrow all the way down to Jerusalem, but if you look at the top of Samaria and the bottom of Galilee, there's a border. kind of goes from the northwest down to the southeast. And he was probably on that border somewhere. He was passing through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, now Galilee was a, it was a Jewish place, but it was also Hellenized in that they, they were influenced by Greek thought a lot there. So people in Jerusalem didn't think so much of the folks in Galilee. And then the Samaritans, oh, well, that was a whole nother story. The Samaritans, they, they weren't thought well of it at all. For instance, when uh, the kingdom after Solomon was divided by Rehoboam, ten tribes went up to the north. That was the northern kingdom and their cap capital, Samaria. And two tribes stayed in the south where Jerusalem was, Judah and Benjamin, and that's where the temple was in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans would find different places to worship up in Samaria. And one of the places that they focused on was called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was, it was a mountain that was next to Mount Ebal. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, when Israel was about to go into the land, Moses gave these instructions. He said, put these large stones that have the law written on them. And on Mount Gerizim would be the law of blessing. And on Mount Ebal were the law of cursing. And then when the people went through Shechem in the middle of the two mounts, the priests were to be on the mountains. And on Mount Gerizim, they would... Uh, shout down blessings. You'll be blessed if you obey God. Your basket will be full. And on Mount Ebal, they said, if you disobey God, you'll be cursed. Your basket will be empty. So when is, uh, the Samaritans chose a place to worship, which mount do you think they chose? They chose Mount Gerizim. Even though the altar for sin was on Mount Ebal. Not only that, but when they were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, one of the plots that the Assyrians had to weaken the northern kingdom was to bring people into the northern kingdom and then have interracial marriage and then have children who were biracial. As a result, people looked down on them. So Jesus is on in the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and from a Jewish mind point, this is dangerous territory. The setting continues. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. So he's moved, you know, the, the camera's over the trees, down the road, Samaria, now he's into a village, doesn't tell us the village. And then there are these ten leprous men who meet him. This leprosy is interesting in that 
it says in verse 13, they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. But before they say that, the narrator told us that they met him from a distance. It was because they knew the law. And in Leviticus chapter 13, it said this, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and his hair and his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It's like having COVID today. We're in isolation. Unclean. I mean, it's such a foreign idea for us. We've heard it, but it doesn't always make a lot of sense. So I'd like to try to briefly explain it. And I would say that everything is focused on conformity to God's design. For instance, God designed land animals to have legs and walk on the land. And he designed fish, sea creatures, to have fins and swim in the sea. So if you had a creature like a lobster that had legs and lived in the sea and walked on the bottom of the sea, it was unclean. It had deviated from God's design. And that is exactly what's going on for the lepers in this passage. They have this skin disease, whether, whether it's Hansen's disease or it's just any kind of skin rash that is contagious, they are deviating from God's design. So they can't go to the temple because God is, is there and, and he represents wholeness at that place. And they can't be around other people because they could infect the other people and then they would be unable to worship God at the temple. And so they had to be at a distance and they had to announce themselves. Unclean, unclean is the announcement. It's to these unclean people that Jesus interacts. He's not afraid of them. Verse 13 says, And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's interesting. They, they know his name, Jesus, but then they use this word, Master. It really doesn't mean master so much. Kind of like sir. I was running last week before church and I was uh, coming up to the head of the Lakeshore Trail and as I was coming up there were a group of ROTC people who were about to run the trail and they kind of parted to let me go through and I said, good morning men. And several of them said, good morning sir. That's it. It's polite and impersonal. I don't know what they thought or who they thought Jesus was. They know his name, but they're polite. 
And then what they ask for is not what I would expect. I would say, Jesus, sir, heal us. But they don't. They say, Jesus, have compassion on us. This is what you need when you're sick. This is what you need when you're an outcast. This is what you need when there just doesn't seem to be any way out of your situation. When you're in despair, comfort, compassion. The poet, he's a German poet, Rene Marie Rilke, described this situation this way. He said, it's possible I'm pushing through solid rock in flint-like layers as the ore lies alone. I'm so far in, I see no way through. Everything is close to my face, and everything close to my face is stone. That's the kind of person that needs compassion. They're more interested in that than in his power. So they cry out to him. They raise their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have compassion on us. And it says, verse 14, And when he saw them, he said, not so fast. When he what? It says he saw them. I think when we're in a dark place, when we're in a hard place, we feel like nobody sees us, like we're in it alone. But this passage says that Jesus saw them. I'm sorry I keep giving illustrations about running, but I have a small world. <laughs> and uh, a few years ago, I was running uh, the, the marathon in Dallas, Texas. It was 42 degrees, and it was a downpour the whole time while we were standing waiting to start, and then the whole time. Actually, uh, around mile 18, I stopped at a portalette, and I went inside, and I thought, this is pretty nice. I could stay here. It was miserable. And we had just finished running around White Rock Lake, and we were running under a bridge, and there was a woman who was on the side, a few people cheering us on under the bridge, and she said and motioned, I see you. I stopped. I walked over to her. I said, what did you say? She said, I see you. I said, Really? Yes, she said. Thank you. I was motivated to go on and finish the race at that point. It's so good to be seen by someone when you're suffering, and I was suffering. So it says in verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Again, you would think he would say, you're healed. 
No, he says, go and show yourself to the priests. This again is, gives us a clue that the people he's talking to know the law. We, we know Jesus knows the law, but the people seem to know the law too. Because in Leviticus chapter 14, it says, Then Moses, or the Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look. And if the infection of the leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders. And the orders are about a sacrifice that's to be given. Part of it includes dipping a live bird in blood from the dead bird and releasing the bird so everybody can see that this miracle cleansing has happened. So he says to them, Go show yourself to the priests. Now, they're not healed yet. You don't go do this until you're healed. But the passage says, and it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Again, it's not the word I'm looking for. I'm looking for them to talk about being healed, but instead they say, have mercy on us. And then as they go, it says, they are cleansed. That's a ritual word again. And what it's saying is that they have moved from this category closer to God's design in that now they are clean. They are cleansed. There's something about being cleansed that changes your life. Now, all of a sudden, you can live in town again. Now, all of a sudden, you can be with your family again. Now, you can go back to work again. It's like, you know, if you were sick and you, you had a, a severe illness and you couldn't even go outside the home, and some of us know what that's like in this congregation when you hear that you are healed, everything changes. And part of that will be one leper's response. It says, verse 15, Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, there's the word I've been looking for, we went from compassion to cleansed, but now one of them saw that he had been healed. First of all, notice he saw it just as Jesus saw them. Now he sees it. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I can see things in other people's lives and I can't see a thing in my life. I'm blind. But he sees it and he saw that he was healed. And the word healed is in the passive voice. I know a grammar lesson this morning on top of all this abuse. Yes, the passive voice. When I, was in, uh, when I was in seminary, we had a Greek class, and they were going to teach us the difference between the active voice and the passive voice. True story. So they said, Dave, you come on up here. So I came up to the front of the class, and then he said, John, you come up here. Now, John was about six foot three, and he had on his hand a Super Bowl ring. And so then the prof said, okay, John, hit Dave. 
I said, John, you know, be gentle. And so John hit me in the shoulder. He says, that was the active voice. John hit Dave. He says, now we're going to talk about it from the passive voice. Dave was hit by someone, by John. And that's what happens in the passage. It says, he saw that he was healed by someone. Well, he knows exactly who the someone was because of his response. It wasn't just himself. It wasn't what he did. So it goes on to tell us in the passage, now, when one of them saw that he was healed, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. This is just the opposite of how we often are. We pray for God to act. We want God to act. And then when God answers our prayer, we kind of become like this very old saying. Tis ever true, once saved, we show no gratitude. Once pity has been granted us, the thanks we swore would be undying with our needs end, itself lies dead. Not with this one. It says that he saw that he had been healed and he turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. It's interesting, earlier it said that the lepers raised their voice, same word, but now he is glorifying God with a mega voice. That's really the word that's used, with a loud voice. He's talking about the greatness of what God has done. I was a leper. I had leprosy. I had this severe skin disease, and God has healed me. His voice is louder than their petition was. Not only that, but it says, he goes a step further, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. He goes to the one that he got the grace from. I mean, how often do we miss this? Someone got... Uh, God works through someone, and we find ourselves blessed by what they have done, and then we don't ever say anything to them. But this one falls on his face, very humble. I still don't know fully what he understands about who Jesus is, but he knows one thing. He was sick, and he has been healed, and it came through Jesus. So it says it fell on his face, and he gave thanks to him. This word for giving thanks comes from two Greek words, and they really mean good grace. Those are the words, good grace. I mean, when I grew up, we used to talk about saying prayer before the meal as saying grace. I don't know if you remember that phrase. Would you say grace today? Even at lunch this week, uh, when our law firm got together, before we ate, I was asked to say grace. I thought, that's interesting. Well, that's what the word that's used here for thanksgiving. It is good grace. And when we give thanks, we are giving goodness to the one who actually benefited us. We're giving thanks. Thanksgiving. 
And then you have this little comment. Oh, and he was a Samaritan. What? I mean, why say that? What's the benefit of telling me that he was a Samaritan? None of these words, though, are just thrown out for no reason. That tells you, in part, that the whole perspective has been a Jewish perspective of this. They know the law. They know the Mosaic law. This guy, though, is a Samaritan. What does that say about him? What does that say about the nine who didn't come back? And Jesus will take that very comment that the narrator gives us, this man was a Samaritan, and he will respond to it. And it surprises. He does this by speaking to those who are there, but not directly to the, the one who's come back. He asks three questions. They're rhetorical but here's my experience when God asks questions. He is never looking for information. Like when Adam and Eve are in the garden. Where are you? You don't think he knows where they are? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I forbade you to eat of? The questions are for the people who hear them. They're not for God to get information. And so Jesus begins by asking questions of those around him. And Jesus answered and said, Where are, Were there not ten cleansed? Answer, yes. But the nine, where are they? Answer, not here. Was no one found who would turn back to give glory to God except this foreigner? See, he's playing off of the Samaritan idea. This foreigner? The word literally means other born. See, well, this is a little hard on the other nine. I mean, they, they left before they were healed. They exercised faith, didn't they? Yes. And they didn't have to come back to give glory to God. God's everywhere. So they could have given glory on the way. Yes. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not sure what I would have done if I were part of the ten. I mean... Uh, I'm a real strict servant of rules. So Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest, and off I would go. And then if I saw I was healed, I might think, well, if I turn back, I might become unclean. But that isn't the way this narrative is going. Their legalistic thinking isn't his thinking. Were there not ten who were healed? Where are the nine? Did none return to give glory to God except this other born one? In the temple they had a sign that used this word for foreigner, other born. It said... 
in the court of the Gentiles, don't pass beyond this point if you're other born. I think the other nine may have been Jewish. And so as they go, they don't respond. Even if, if we can think of reasons why they didn't respond, they should have responded, seems to be Jesus' point of view. They should have given thanks. But they feel entitled. And you know what happens when you and I feel entitled? We become ungrateful. I'm Jewish. This is supposed to happen to me. I'm a follower of Christ. This is supposed to happen to me. Then Jesus turns his stare of grace on the one who came back. And he speaks in a really short sentence, but it's full of meaning. And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. This is an interesting word that's used. You know, we have mercy on us. They were cleansed. He was healed. Your faith has saved you. Luke uses the same word in Acts chapter 4 when they heal the man who was lame at the temple and then they come before the Sanhedrin and Luke says, uh, uh, really Peter says, so are we on trial today because we saved this man? That's the word he uses. You could say, oh, see, it just means healed. And then he says, looking at the Sanhedrin, and you too may be saved. They're not lame. See, this is the wonder of this passage. It's the surprise. This man has moved to full conformity to God's design. He was unclean, and then he became clean. And then as he gave thanks, Jesus saw his faith. And he said, you are saved. Now he's holy. Now he's able to be completely in conformity to God's design. Say, oh, well that, okay, if I'm thankful, then I'll be saved. Well, that's our legalistic mindset. If I do this, then I'll get that. And that's really the opposite of how it works, isn't it? Here, he was sincerely thankful. Because he was sincerely thankful, God saw his faith, and he said, your faith has saved you. So what are you thankful for this morning? For some of us, it's hard to find anything to be thankful for. I understand what that's like. So I'm hopeful that this little song will give you some areas to think about and will just kind of spur up thankfulness in your own heart. Who do you thank at the gate of the dawn as the hounds of the night back away? Who do you thank for the morning's new song Sung by the birds as they play Who do you thank for the sermon of sun Preaching the hope of a new day begun Testifying 
That love's light is one Who do you thank for this kingdom come? Who do you thank for the knowledge of noon Stands every shadow on end Who do you thank for the neighborhood tunes That hang in the breeze like old friends Who do you thank as the sky tumbles down Wraps its red robe round town after town to start making their rounds Who do you think has beauty abounds? Thanks be to God for the wonder of living Thanks be to God that it's free Thanks be to God for the life that you're given Resting in mercy, fragrant and kind Holy design, living in Thanks be to God, thanks be to thanks be to God. And who do you thank for the map of your mind that charters the course of your day, leaving you room in this canyon of time to know what to look for and say? Who do you thank for the mural of life Savor of senses sharp as a knife, the privilege of poignant, the honor of right. Who do you thank for delight? Who do you thank for the treasure of home wrapped in the reel of routine? The honor of knowing your own flesh and bone and watching them wake from your dreams. Who do you thank? For the structure of souls Tied to each other from infant to old Beauty so human, so holy to hold Who do you thank for this gold? Thanks be to God for the life that you're living Thanks be to God that it's free Thanks be to God that your shame is forgiven Away by the stare of his grace, the look on his face has melted the mob. Thanks be to God, thanks be to thanks be to God. And who do you thank as your days tumble in? Hang like sweet herbs in the hall Who do you thank as your moments begin To listen for their final call Who do you thank for the shape of your days Who do you thank for winning your ways Who do you thank for this primer of praise As spirit prepares to leave Thanks be to God for the breath that you're breathing. Thanks be to God that it's free. Thanks be to God that though death may come stealing and take what it can, it can't have what you own. Your soul has a home beyond this sod. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to thanks be to thanks be to God. It's beyond this sod. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to thanks be to God.
Well, amen.